0: Well, let's pray together. Father, we come before you again to just thank you for even the words of that very song that causes our hearts and minds to focus our attention on you and the reality that we gain so much, everything really, for life and godliness from your word. You are sufficient in all things. You are the one who sustains us in all things, and so we come to you for all things, and we ask that you would indeed attend to our time, that you would speak to us, O Lord, that we might be like you. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Is this on? I think this is on. Well, originally we were going to uh, spend our time in the doctrine of the atonement, and um, after having a rather lengthy conversation recently uh, with someone, I, I just wanted to touch on a subject and some details in reference to the ministry that we have as Christians when it comes to the Evangelical Church in America, and especially then to also piggyback on what Russ taught last Lord's Day. Because as I survey the church in America in my own life and my own ministry, I'm continually shocked, really, at the lengths with which churches will go in order to accommodate the masses of people, the pragmatism that that is so prevalent in so many places really is shocking to me. And the way they they denigrate the Word of God, they devalue God by a lack of reverence for the absolute truth that the Word of God proclaims is rather sad. There are churches all across America and the world that have literally taken the Word of God out of their worship. Minimized it to such a degree, if in fact it is mentioned at all, that it is really out of the worship service, and they have traded it for humanistic philosophies of men. Philosophies that really pandered to the desires of the flesh rather than to the desires of our holy and almighty God. And I'm thankful to God that really our church here, Fellowship Bible Church, has not really succumbed to any wave of emotionalism that has seemingly swept across the country over the last decade. Because the fallout from that kind of philosophy has been a weak church at best and actually a dead church at worst. People may be sitting in the pews People may be in the chairs, they may come into the church in large amounts of people, and yet the fact of the matter is the church is a dead place filled with individuals that truly believe that they are following after God, the God of the Bible, when in fact they are following after a God of their own making, a God which they have created. And the underlying cause of all of this is that God's word is not truly believed as the standard for all life and godliness, as we know Peter tells us it is. And the moment there's a compromise, the moment there is doubt about what God says at any level, the moment you crack the door at any place and allow the light of the philosophies of men to enter in and to be almost equal, if not above the word of God, then everything becomes suspect. Everything is open to review. Once man's philosophy becomes a competing philosophy with which there is authority in it, then everything is open for review. And as as important it is for the corporate body not to fall prey to that, it is exponentially more important for the individual parts of the body not to fall to that, which is you and I, the body of Christ. The body of Christ will be and is in fact weakened when the individual parts become apathetic to the things of God. And I'm thankful for our church. I'm thankful for how this church operates in many, many ways, albeit we have not arrived at our final stage of perfection and we will continue to work on our spiritual gifts and our spiritual uh, disciplines as we have all even Thought about here tonight at the beginning, but we have not arrived. But I'm thankful, and somewhat what I'm going to say tonight is preaching to the choir, and yet a good reminder for us as we think about the upcoming year, as we think about the church, as we think about us in the church. Because where there is apathy in the church, the church will be sick. And if apathy continues in the church, then the church will eventually die. Apathy simply means to have a lack of concern, to have a lack of interest. That's apathy. To be someone who just is eh, laissez-faire about it, no interest. And in the church, those who are apathetic have a lack of true concern or lack of interest in the body of Christ. They have a lack of interest in the church. And it shows itself through an unwillingness to use their gifts in the body, and as we have studied over the years, the effectiveness of any church and I and I really want to hone this down to our church, the effectiveness of this church, the effectiveness of FBC over the future years as we are here together will continually be undermined if we are not a community of believers that are committed to active ministry. Let me say that again. The effectiveness of Fellowship Bible Church will, in fact, be undermined if we are not a community of believers that are committed to active ministry. We might even throw in the word that we heard this morning in our adult Sunday school, if we're not intentional about it. We're not intentional about it. I want to ask us tonight to open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to i want to read for us the first 16 verses. We're not going to cover all that, but I think we need to hear it from the Apostle Paul just to have it in our minds and refresh ourselves of just the overall flow of this text. Ephesians chapter four, beginning in verse one, Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower part of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him, who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Was <clears throat> thinking about this passage this last week, it seems rather normal today for people to join clubs and organizations that represent a whole host of causes. Some of us are even part of gymnasiums and things like that. When you join a club, when you join an organization, when you sign on the dotted line, you read through the paperwork, it's normal for us to for you to agree to certain regulations within that organization, certain rules. You don't want to abide by those rules that are set forth by the club or the organization, then you don't become a part of that particular club. On the other hand, if you want to be a vital part of a certain club, then you have to live by the standard that that club sets. If you if you want to be a member in good standing with whatever it is, you have to live by that set of standards. In other words, as a person, you subscribe to the goals and you agree to live by the standard and the rules of that certain organization. Well, We try to bring this across in one sense, looking at Scripture when we talk about membership in the body in the church itself, in a local body, and yet membership in the body of Christ carries the same demands. And yet they have a much higher purpose. We are called Christians. And as Christians, we are commanded to follow a certain standard. We're commanded to be a certain way, to follow certain rules that are characteristic of all of those who claim to know Christ. The Apostle Paul clearly delineates that really for us here in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And he says that when we are joined to the family of God, when we are brought in by God's grace through the calling of God, through the blessing of faith that He grants us that we might exercise that faith believing Jesus Christ, then we receive all of the rights and all of the privileges and all of the honors that are given to heavenly children. Notice how Paul puts this in just the first three chapters. He says, In Christ, being united with Jesus Christ, verse 3, he says, we have every spiritual blessing. So there's the first thing, you are are granted every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, in Christ we have election. We've been elected in Christ. Verse 5, we have adoption as sons, Verse 7, we have redemption and forgiveness. Verse 9, we know the mystery of God's will because we're in the body of Christ. Verse 11, we have an inheritance. Verse 12, we have hope. Verse 13, we have the seal of the Holy Spirit because we are in Christ. Verse, or chapter 2 and verse 5, he says, we are made alive, spiritually alive. We're no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, as verse 1 says, we are made alive with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6, we are seated with him in the heavenlies. We are raised up with him, verse 6. Verse 7 of chapter 2, we have been shown God's grace. Verse 13, we have been brought near to God by being in Christ. In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 22 of chapter 2. We have the dwelling of indwelling of God. We are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit by being in Christ. Chapter three, verse six: We are partakers of promises. Partakers of the promise that's in Christ through the gospel. In chapter three, verse twelve, we have boldness and confidence in faith in Him. So there's a whole lot of benefits, there's a whole lot of privileges, there's a whole lot of honors that we have by simply being united with Christ, and therefore it's inconsistent for us to to belong to the body of Christ, or even say we belong to the body of Christ, which in a local sense is the church, To have all these rights, to have all these privileges, to have all these honors, which come through that relationship with Jesus Christ, It's, it's inconsistent for us to not live according to the goals of the body by conforming ourselves to what God requires for us in the body. It's inconsistent. It's unnatural for us as Christians to be apathetic to the things of God. When a Christian knows truth, it should be the obvious duty to live in light of that relationship, to live out that truth, to do what we must do because we desire to be obedient to the truth. We experientially know the truth and therefore we obey the truth. That's the idea. By the way, that's why verse 11 says, in chapter 4, Paul says that God has given us some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? Because the, the body of Christ, the local church, needs doctrinal teaching. It needs that. Some churches say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to teach doctrine because doctrine simply just divides people. It separates people, creates these factions in the church. Well, Well, that goes against God's design because God said right here that he gave these things to teach the people, to equip the people. And so it's the responsibility of the leadership to continually teach the church the truth so that they carry on the work of the ministry. I've said this in our leadership meetings. I've said it once. I've said it a hundred times. This is not a me ministry. This is a we ministry. The ministry doesn't get done here if we don't do the work of the ministry. and So our conduct in the body of Christ is related to our knowledge of and our understanding of the truth in God's Word. It flows out from that. Because we have been raised up with Christ, because we have been given, as Paul says, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, we are therefore then implored to Commanded, exhorted by the truth to conduct ourselves in a way that reflects a knowledge of that truth. In other words, our Christian life is a reflection of our knowledge and understanding of our position in Christ. It's interesting that we had nothing to do with our position in Christ. In the past, we had nothing to do with getting ourselves in the position with Christ. We have nothing to do with getting ourselves in with Christ. And we will have nothing to do with our position in Christ in the future. It's all of God. Had God not given us the ability to exercise faith, we would have no position in Christ. You and I would just be false professors. Remember, one of our favorite verses, Ephesians chapter 2, it's quoted often. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. A lot of argumentation about that verse as to what is he talking about? Is he talking about salvation? Is he talking about faith? Is he talking about grace? What What is it? Well, I think the context and I think the grammar clearly shows that it's faith that's the gift. Faith is the gift. So if we're not going to fall prey to some apathetic bent that we see happening around the globe and in so many churches in America today, if we're going to be a community of believers that is intentionally committed to active ministry, and it's imperative that each of us carry our lives in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called that Paul says here in chapter 4 in verse 1. why well, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you. Entreat you based upon chapters 1 through 3, based upon what you know, based upon what you are in Christ, based upon what you've been given, based upon this in Christ reality that is yours. Based upon all of that, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And that's the continual prayer, really, of mine and Russ and other leaders here at the church. That's the continual prayer of our heart. That your hearts would be filled with a desire for active ministry. But we'll never use our giftedness. And as we No, right? Verse 7, each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift, therefore each one of us has a gift. We'll never use our giftedness, which each one of us has been given if we know Jesus Christ. We'll never use that in the body if we are not living our lives in a manner worthy of our calling. So, we want to walk worthy. We want to adorn the truth of God in our lives in an unbelieving world so that they will see the magnificent transforming reality of the miracle of God's grace to change a life from a sinner who is bent on sinning in every way to one who desires to honor and please God. And since a strong church is made up of those who walk worthy of the calling, how do you and I know if our life is reflecting that? How do we know? Well, the Apostle Paul here in chapter 4 gives us the answer by listing five distinctives that characterize a worthy walk. In verses 2 and 3, they're listed for us. And while there are five listed here, I just want us to focus our attention on the first one. It says like the sequel of last Sunday morning, because it's opposite of what is behind what lies behind the apathy. What lies behind apathy in the church today is opposite what we see the apostle Paul say here in verse two. Because Paul says we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which we have been called with all humility. With all humility. The number one spiritual killer in the church, the number one spiritual killer of anyone's spiritual efforts, the br- number one breeder, if you will, of Christian apathy is the attitude of pride just flat-out pride. Of course, we understand what pride is. We know that it's the opposite of humility, and pride has no place in the family of God. The Bible tells us that pride is not a natural characteristic of those who identify with Christ. It's not who we are. Pride is, in fact, only natural to those who who do not know God. Why? Because they're godless. They're godless. They cannot express any kind of God-honoring humility. Only honoring humility that a godless person can express is the humility that God gives them by granting them grace to repent. Because pride puffs up self. Pride promotes self. Pride is all about self. Pride Pride thinks more highly of itself than it ought to think. Pride says that its unbiblical way is the right way. So pride says, Go the opposite direction of the Bible, it's the right way. That's pride. That's the voice of pride. We know pride well from reading the scriptures. It was pride that ushered sin into the angelic realm when Lucifer exalted himself. In Isaiah chapter 14, you can read about it. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will be like God. It was pride that then Satan used in the garden to tempt man, to rebel against God so that Adam and Eve would exalt themselves the same idea that's behind Christian apathy today. The idea that you can be in a church, be part of a church, be part of that club, and not exercise your giftedness in that church. Apathetic. The Apostle Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, I read it this morning in our Sunday school class, to expect pride. In the last days, men will be lovers of self. That's pride. That's pride. All of those verses in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 all the way through verse 5, acknowledge a love of self. They express a love of self, an arrogance about self. And they describe the way of the world. They describe the way of those who do not know or acknowledge God. But we who are Christians are to be known not by pride, we're to be known by humility. Humility. It's humility which reflects the character of Christ. Russ reminded us of this last Lord's Day when he took us to Philippians chapter 2. Remember what Philippians 2 says, verse 5 through 7? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. I I love those verses. They're they're verses that I go to in my own mind, in my own heart, my own thought process, and even in my reading time from time to time, because... They start with that base level of Christian existence. Have this attitude in yourself. It's the exhortation in one sense that we hear the Apostle Paul even saying here to the Ephesian believers, with all humility. Have this attitude in yourselves, he said to the Philippian believers. Why? Because this is where true humility begins. It's where it starts where all true use of your gifts in the church begins. An attitude of Christ. Over my tenure as a pastor in the ministry, the 20 plus years I've been in the ministry here and other places, I've heard people say to me, the reason that I don't want to be a part of your church, or the reason I don't want to continue there is because I don't get to do what I am gifted to do how they express themselves. And what they're saying is, it's all about me. It's all about what I am. Well, Pastor, didn't you say we're supposed to exercise our gifts? Yes, we're to exercise our giftedness. We're to be used in the the ministry, yet with all humility. That's where it begins. It begins with humility. Humility begins with the right attitude about yourself. Here's how one author said it. He said, quote, the habitual frame of mind of a child of God is that of one who feels not only that he owes all his natural gifts to God, but that he has been the object of undeserved redeeming love and who regards himself as being not his own, but God's in Christ. Therefore, he cannot exalt himself for he knows that he has nothing of himself. The humble mind is thus at the root of all the other graces and virtues, That author simply is saying is that real service and real ministry in the church begins with true humility. Begins with saying, I'm not worthy. Begins with the attitude of Jesus Christ. And I say true humility when I say that because there is a kind of false humility. There is a false humility that sometimes people have. And false humility is just another name for pride. Just a synonym, really, for pride. It's the sister of pride because false humility is is a, a self sought outward appearance of humility. But in reality it's pride in disguise. There are examples of this, by the way, in scripture. Turn for a moment over to Luke chapter 18, just to kind of give us one example. I think this is maybe one of the most significant examples in Scripture of this false humility. Matthew or Luke chapter 18, you have beginning in verse 9, this parable of certain ones who you notice trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. There's the, the the crux of the issue. There wasn't an attitude in themselves that they were like Christ. It was, I'm righteous, and anybody who isn't like me must not be righteous. You notice, verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, this is the religious elite, those who are at the highest level of of at least visible religiosity, vigi- visible righteousness, and the other at the lowest end of the dregs, a tax gatherer, one who worked for the opposite, con- the, the oppressing country. One who would go against even his own people. And so you have this juxtaposition of one who said he was righteous and another who knows he's not. The Pharisee stands and was praying to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this guy sitting here in the church with me. Not like him. Why? Because I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. I mean, I'm a pretty good guy. As I look at myself and I see myself, especially in comparison to this guy, I am righteous. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, wasn't even, he was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful to me. The sinner, the Pharisees kind of humility, whatever form it may come in, even in our own day, has to be continually guarded against. We all, as I said this morning, we all have a little Phariseeism in us. We have to guard against it if we are to serve God in a worthy manner, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, "Walk in a manner worthy of your calling with all humility. It's not genuine humility when we humble ourselves in comparison to others. That's false humility. It's not genuine humility when we are humbled by or, or it's not genuine humility in, in that idea like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. It's only genuine humility when we begin to compare ourselves to God. That's when our humility is genuine. When we see ourselves in light of who God is, then that's when true humility is happening. That's the attitude. And from that attitude, the use of our gifts in the church becomes not duty, it becomes desire. It becomes desire. I'll just be used because I don't deserve to be here anyway. It becomes a service to others rather than a service for us. It becomes not a search for my own significance in the monks of everybody else so that I'm seen as significant. It becomes rather a search to just serve others. So true humility then can only be a characteristic of those who truly know Jesus Christ. It cannot be a characteristic of those who do not because the unsaved can't express true humility because true humility reflects the attitude of Christ. No unbeliever knows Christ. Therefore, no unbeliever can reflect the attitude of Christ, because Paul says, have this attitude in you which was also in Christ. The unsaved can't express that. And so humility is the overarching virtue of the true Christian. As that one author said, is the virtue that undergirds all the other virtues. See. One virtue that Paul begins with here, which undergirds everything that he's going to say from chapter 4 through the end of chapter 6 in Ephesians. Humility. In fact, you notice in chapter 5 he says be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. Well, if we're to be like Christ, have the attitude in Christ, that's God. We are to walk in love just as Christ did. Well, that's going to take humility. It's going to take humility. Wives, if you're ever going to be subject to your own husbands, you're going to have to do it in Christ. You're going to have to do it with the attitude of Christ. You're going to have to do it out of humility. And husbands, if you're going to lead your wife as Christ has led the church, as he himself gave himself up for the church, then you're going to have to do it with humility. I'm going to start with the attitude of Christ. He gets to chapter 6 and says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. He says the reason, because it's right. Because it's right. It reflects a proper attitude. Honor your father and mother. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your master. All of this is undergirded by this reality of humility. Humility. Humility is all over the place in the Word of God. Psalm 138, verse 6 says, For though the Lord is exalted, yet He regards the lowly, the humble. Though God is in the highest place, the exalted place, He regards those who are humble. But the haughty or the proud, He knows from afar, it says. Proverbs 3 Verse 33 and 34, the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 16, 19, it's better to be of a humble spirit with the humble than to divide the spoil with the proud. We all know James chapter 1. Verse 19 to 22, this you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. It's clear just from that little short survey of a few scriptures that the Lord is opposed to the proud, but He loves those who are humble. Beloved, I, I don't know your heart. I cannot see your heart. You cannot see my heart. You do not know my heart. But I know this. Humility is a fruit born by the Spirit living in you. Humility grows in the fertile ground of a spirit-led life. And God knows your heart. All of us have to ultimately answer to him. And so it's pride that's the silent killer that keeps the body of Christ from becoming healthy. Pride, simply pride. When people just arbitrarily up and depart from, this place with no biblical understanding and no biblical reason as we've seen in the past. And even as we've seen in this last year, sadly to us, it has nothing to do except with pride. It's just pride. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 16 says, every joint supplies. Every joint supplies. Every one of us is to be supplying its part to the growth of the body. The thing that keeps us from doing that is simply our pride, serving ourselves rather than serving others. So so how do we cultivate that? How How do we cultivate humility in our own lives so that we might serve as we ought to? Many of you serve in ways that are unfathomably beyond anything we could ask. This church serves one another in great ways, but how do, we, how do we cultivate this attitude of humility? Because I believe we can develop humility in our lives so that we'll serve God without reference to ourselves. And I think we can do that when we practice four realities. Four realities. I'll just list them for us. I I think I've mentioned them in the past over different times, but but these are the four realities. Remember, second, repent, third, respond, and four, relinquish. There's four R's. Remember, repent, respond, relinquish. If we're going to develop humility, we need to deal with pride. And to do that, first of all, we need to remember who we are. Remember who we really are. Humility in this life is sometimes hard to come by. Sometimes hard to come by. And you know why? Because it begins with an honest look at ourselves. That's where humility that's where this attitude begins to be cultivated. Humility is the virtue by which you and I become conscious of our own unworthiness. We're just not worthy. Christ, was hum- Christ humbled himself, even though he was worthy of all glory. But our humility begins when we see ourselves as unworthy of anything. That's where humility begins. Remembering who we really are. Sadly, many Christians stroll through the Christian life not serving and using their gifts in the body, not ministering to others because they've never truly looked at themselves in the mirror of God's divine holiness. (laughs) They've never really and saw who they really are and what they've been given in Christ, if they're saved at all. Because none of us deserve the high place in which God has placed us in Christ. None of us deserve all those things we listed in the first three chapters. None of us. <clears throat> and sadly, many who claim Christ squander that great privilege because of pride. Pride. Listen to what God said to the nation of Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter six, beginning in verse 10, just listen to this. He said, then it shall come about when the Lord, your God brings you into the land, which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you great and splendid cities, which you did not build houses full of good things, which you did not fill and hewn cisterns, which you did not dig vineyards and all the trees, which you did not plant and you shall eat and be satisfied, then watch yourself, he says. Watch yourself, why? Lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. I love that. There's the the cure. There's the cure for self-exaltation, for self, for pride, for this... Loving of self. Be careful that you do not forget where you came from and who it is that made it all happen. I have this attitude in you, which was in Christ. Don't become prideful. It has deadly results. Verse 13 of that same passage, he says, you shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. The The implication of that verse is that when you're exercising your pride, you're not fearing the Lord. In fact, you're exalting yourself as God. Verse 14 of that passage in Deuteronomy, you shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. And when you do that, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. That's a pretty severe reality. God is saying, listen, beware of pride. None of us deserve the life that God has given us through our salvation in Jesus Christ. None of us deserve our exalted position to be with Christ. And when we realize that we are nothing without Christ, we will live for Christ in all humility. That's Why Paul says it the way he does He's the prisoner of the Lord, and he entreats us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Humility. We need to remember who we are. Secondly, we need to practice repentance in our lives. Practice repentance. Only the proud believe they no longer need to repent. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's that's the heart of repentance. In fact, the Apostle John said it in 1 John, that this is the character of those who truly know God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. That's the exercise of a daily reality of a Christian life. So when we open the Word of God, when we look in the Word of God and with the mirror, we're we're seeing it reflect at us and we see our uncleanness, then our spirit-led response should be one of repentance. Our new natural response to sin is to be turning from sin, to be turning unto righteousness, to be walking in a manner worthy of that which we have been called. We are to practice repentance. We remember who we are. We respond in repentance. Or we, uh, sorry, I'll get it for us. I'll give you the third. Respond rightly to rebuke. This is the third. Remember, repent, respond. Respond rightly to rebuke. You know what the common response is when someone comes and challenges us oftentimes? Here's the common response. No, I didn't. That's usually our response, isn't it? Someone comes and says something, it really doesn't matter what it is, it doesn't matter how mundane it is, there's a challenge to you, and so you say, no, I didn't do that. In other words, the problem isn't me, the problem's in you. The problem's your understanding, or your view, or whatever it is of how this thing has come about. That's the common response. That ought not be our response. We're commanded in Scripture to go to one another. Galatians 6.1, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. That's the second quality here that Paul lists, humility and gentleness. There's this spirit of humility, this gentleness, each one looking to yourself, because you know you too can be tempted. Every single one of us, even though we know Christ is fleshiness being sanctified, God sanctifying us in this process, that just simply means we're going to sin, we're going to fall, even though we're saved. And so when it comes to the church, we know we should be using our gifts in the church, we know we should be engaging ourselves, using our talents and things God has given us, supplied to us for the building up of the body, using them so that others might see Christ. Not so that they might puff us up and and see us as more righteous than them, no we know we're supposed to do that. But that's gonna matter of how and how we respond when someone challenges us when we're rebuked the attitude of humility will respond to rebuke in such a way that it looks at what needs to be fixed rather than what needs to be defended. It won't say, no, I didn't. What it will say is, really? Man, I didn't realize that about myself. Or it'll just sit quiet and listen. Why? Because humility recognizes a wrong not in comparison to somebody else or comparison to their view of something but in comparison to Christ. Desires to do what's right before God regardless of anyone else. So to develop humility we need to remember that we are who we are because of God's grace not ourselves. We Need to continually practice genuine repentance, and we need to respond rightly to the rebukes that God brings into our life through others. And then, lastly, we we have to continually practice relinquishing our desires for God's desires. You realize God's desire is that His bride be completely purified, that His bride be made. In such a way that it is made ready for him when he comes. That's his desire for the body, which is his church. He wants it to be made strong. Spiritually strong. And because of that, he gifted each person in the body for the building up of the body through the use of the spiritual service in the body. <clears throat> That's why even those who are given as prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers are there for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service. So That each part, every joint supplying according to the proper working of their individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Verse 16 says, James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? <clears throat> don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Want something, you don't get it, so you covet, kill. Can't have what you want, you quarrel and fight. The sad part is, not only do we do that with other people, we do that with God. We do that with God. We quarrel with God. Our desires become more precious to us than what God desires. And so we battle with God. You know why? You know why we battle with God? Pride. Pride. Unwillingness to relinquish our desire for God's desire. He desires building others up. He desires building the church. And we say, yeah, but my time's more important to me. I don't want to do that. My my ability to not be embarrassed because I think if I do that, I might be embarrassed. I don't want to do that. That's more important to me than your desire to build others up, God. We argue with God. We don't relinquish. But He desires to build up the body. And when we don't use our gifts, we just tear others apart. Remember what it says in Philippians, the first eight verses of Philippians. I read a, a part of that with the attitude of Christ, but beginning in verse one of Philippians chapter two, if there is there any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love. If there's any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What is that one purpose? Well, here it is. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Why? Why do I do that? Because that's the attitude of Christ. What Paul said in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, because verses 1 through 4 are a description of the reality of that, the outworking of the attitude of Christ in you, a relinquishing of yourself for the benefit of somebody else. So if our Lord relinquished himself on our behalf, then shouldn't we do the same for others? Church is not a place for the proud. Identification identification with Christ means that we reflect Christ. And he was nothing but humble. So if the attitude of humility doesn't undergird our lives, then we may never serve in the church with a heart for God. We we're, we're just participants, we're just bench sitters. We're we're really parasites if you will in one sense, taking everything but giving nothing. True service begins with nothing less than our full sacrifice. Sacrificing ourselves because our Savior sacrificed everything for us. This is what Paul is saying. I want to I end our time by reading some words from Octavius Winslow entitled, Evening Thoughts. He said, it's utterly impossible to savingly know Jesus and not become inspired with a desire to resemble him closely, to love him supremely and to serve him devotedly. And oh, how worthy is the Savior of our most exalted conceptions and our most implicit confidence and our most self-denying service and our most Fervent love. When he could give us no more, and the fathomless depths of his love and the boundless resources of his grace would not be satisfied by giving us less, he gave us himself. Robed in our nature, laden with our curse. Oppressed with our sorrows, wounded for our transgressions, and slain for our sins. He gave his entire self for us. Therefore, he deserves no less from us. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful. Challenged, encouraged, exhorted, I trust, impelled to do what you have asked us to do. Lord, thank you for your word, for the clarity of it, for being encouraged over these last two weeks about humility. Thank you for what we heard last Lord's Day and for these truths here. Help us to remember who we are, where we came from, what we were not, and now what you have given us. Help us to re- to repent, to cultivate that attitude in us when there's sin that we would repent of it. Help us respond rightly to rebuke in our life. Lord, and help us to relinquish our desires. To hold them loosely. Allow them to, to be in your hand, whatever you desire. If you would have us serve in a certain way, then certainly gift us in those ways. Allow us to be used in those ways for your glory, not for our significance. So that you receive all the glory, so that we are simply instruments in your hand and you receive all the honor and praise. Thank you for each one of these people here, their desire to know you, serve you, they love you, they care. Lord, honor your name in their life. Cause this church to be strong because of each one as they use their gifts for you. That this church might be strong in this place. The world might know that our Savior is a real Savior. That you are a living and true God. We'll praise you today, and if there are tomorrows, we'll praise you in all of our tomorrows until the end of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.